Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 208. If you can talk brilliantly about a problem, it can create a consoling illusion that it has been mastered. Stanley Kubrick. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my Indie Film Hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Video Blocks. Now, guys, when I was shooting my show for Legendary Pictures, uh, and I did that 96 pages in four days, I actually got into post and we used a lot of stock footage, stock sounds, and even some uh, graphics from Video Blocks. They are an amazing resource. With your membership, you are granted the rights to use that footage forever in perpetuity on any projects you want to. So if you want to try a seven-day free trial, and by the way, anything you download during those seven days is yours to keep. And if you decide to stay, you get 84% off the yearly membership. It is well worth it, guys. Trust me, if you do a lot of production, it is something you really need. So just head over to videoblocks.com forward slash hustle. So sorry I'm a little bit late, guys. I got hit with the Christmas flu. My daughter gave me a early Christmas gift. And uh, even even a hustler like myself gets knocked down by the uh, by the flu every once in a blue moon. So, but I am back, and today we have a insanely cool episode. I am talking to one of the OGs, the original gangsters of the filmmaking blogger sphere, Philip Bloom. Now, if you guys don't know who Philip Bloom is, Google him because <laughs> he has been around since the early two thousands. He's one of the first filmmaking bloggers out there. He has a massive online empire, if you will. He's worked with George Lucas, shot uh, shot the movie Red Tails with him on a Canon 5D when it first came out. He also travels the world as an award-winning cinematographer. And over the years, I've learned a ton from his YouTube channel, his blog, and all the cool stuff that he puts out there for the filmmaking community. And I am honored and humbled that he would come on the, the podcast to share his experience and knowledge with the tribe. And there'll be a little surprise for you at the end of this episode. Philip's got this brand new insane course that he's got called Philip Bloom's Cinematic Masterclass. And I will have a link at the end of this episode where you guys can go and check it out. It is almost 10 hours long. It is 
definitely a masterclass. I have taken a bunch of it already, and I've learned a few things along the way as well, so definitely check that out. But without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Philip Bloom. I'd like to welcome to the show Philip Bloom. Thank you, sir, so much for uh, taking the time out to uh, to share your knowledge with the, the tribe. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. So how did you get into this crazy business? <laughs> a very... Uh... A path which probably doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it goes back to um, I think most times when you're growing up and you don't know what to do, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember watching a, a TV show, that, um, and it was about a it was a guy who tried out different careers, and one episode was where he tried to be a news photographer, mm-hmm. uh, and I watched that. And this was this was like in the sort of like mid eighties. And I thought that looks really cool. So a friend of my dad's knew a press photographer. And so I had a conversation with him about it. And I I took photos. I was, you know, a hobbyist, Mm -hmm. nothing particularly serious, but I took photos, but I thought that looks like a really interesting job because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And then, um, he said to me, I would not bother doing this because Photography's on the way out because digital is coming in, and mm-hmm. that's going to change everything. It's going to cheapen the industry. You should get into TV news. That's where the future is. Mm-hmm. So I went, yeah, why not? So I then sort of like made inquiries and contacts and tried to get in touch with somebody, and eventually found somebody who knew somebody, and I managed to go out with a news crew. And I was must have been about 16 or 17, did that for the day. And it was the best thing I'd ever done. It was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the golden age of TV news in a way, because where you were really looked after. I think they did a, um, I went out with them, it was like a three-man crew. We went out to the press conference for a, a boxer. Mm-hmm. Then we had a three-hour lunch <laughs> and a Chinese restaurant, a really expensive Chinese restaurant, all on the company. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is the life. And then I think. Then they, they said, oh, we may do something later, but probably not. That'll be it for the day. I'm like, this is a job? Wow. <laughs> so I did, uh, and by, uh, you know, eventually I, by the time I left school, I, I then got, I managed to get my foot into door into Sky Television and mm-hmm. um, to try and become a news cameraman. So that's kind of how I got in. Never wanted to be a, a use that word filmmaker. I never wanted to be a filmmaker in the slightest. Mm-hmm. Wanted to do some, wanted to find a job that could pay me uh, to do something that was interesting mm-hmm. uh, because I really had no idea what I wanted to do growing up. And that was basically, I just sort of fell into it. Just found that I really enjoyed um, filming mm-hmm. and really enjoyed the the excitement of, and boredom as well of news. And I kind of, that's kind of where it went really. And I did that for 17 years. Oh, wow. I was working um, for staff. And it was the best training anybody I think you can have when you, if you want to become a, a storyteller because mm-hmm. you get, I got to, also learn how to use gear, not particularly technically because it was much simpler times. It was one camera, <laughs> one lens. Right. You know, Two settings. Light, try, that's it. It was like, you know, there's no settings in camera. It's turn it on. And oh, you, you had a gain switch. There you go. Yes. Um, white balance. I forget the, in the white balance. So yeah. Yeah, white balance, and of course it was black and white viewfinder, so you had to get it right. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you knew you got it right because you didn't get a phone call later to tell you that you got it wrong. Right. So that's kind of the way things worked back then. But it was brilliant. It was great training. I got to learn how to tell stories really quickly. I learned how to shoot 
efficiently how to walk into a room mm-hmm. and see the positions where I need to be. I knew how to learn how to figure out how, what shots I needed to get really quickly. Um, and then they also, then they gave me a chance to do long form stuff later on. And I was always traveling around the world and they taught me how to edit. It was just a, a really brilliant experience. And, and I guess it's one of those things that when you get to, I got really comfortable with it mm-hmm. and I could easily still be doing it now, but I realized that I had to leave to push myself further. And that was 11 years ago. And that's and when you got, now. and then you got into more filmmaking, more documentary, uh, after that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, docu- documentaries is kind of what I was doing for the last few years of my staff job anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was one of the few, uh, cameramen, there was like 25 cameramen that worked at, at the company on the news roster. And I was one of the few who edited. Mm-hmm. And so I got sent to do the interesting stories mm-hmm. and then they gave me the more creative stuff and I showed a flair for doing creative stuff. And so they, they pushed me to more and more and do that. And then, so I was doing the longer form stuff, sort of like what, I guess what you equate is like 60 minutes mm-hmm. types that you have. And that was brilliant. So that really gave me the taste for longer stuff of doing that. So that's when I went into freelancing. That's why I really wanted to still push forward with documentaries as my main thing. It is still my main thing, mm-hmm. but also try the other things which could, which, you know, interested me, you know, and, and I certainly found that trying all these different things and still doing the different types of work mm-hmm. really helps in every aspect. You know, if you're filming narrative fiction, mm-hmm. um, coming from a news documentary background is incredibly useful because you, you know, you have that speed of thought, but also if you've, um, you, what you can take from that fiction though, is the aspect of planning and and working with others for to, you know, in a much more um, controlled way and bring that into your documentary work can can have a really interesting effect so i love the way that everything that i've done in these past 11 years has really sort of gelled and worked together to make everything hopefully better now you at what point in your career did you decide hey i'm going to start blogging i'm going to open up a youtube show i'm a youtube channel i mean you're one of the first guys in the, in the industry, in, in the film industry, uh, at all that was kind of figuring that out. How did you start this blog and, and what made you want to start one? So I think the website started, um, initially, and this was in 2006, just as a place for my showreel because, um, nobody prior to this, people were just, and still at this time were sending out DVDs sure. or CD rolls or, v- or VHS. <laughs> Or VHSs, and nobody, the effort it takes oh. for somebody to open it up and put it in a machine and play it, it means they're not going to watch it. And right. I just thought, if I could just send them a link over this thing called email that everybody seems to start having these days. And that, and that's what it, basically, it was just seen the most obvious way of doing things. And, and that's basically what it started as. And then um, I, about a year later, I started up the blog. And the blog was really was just a simple way of me sharing my experiences using something called 35 millimeter adapters, mm-hmm. which is what we used before DSLRs. Mm-hmm. It was a way of tricking these smaller sensor cameras into having essentially 35 millimeter field of view and aesthetic and everything. And it was mm-hmm. a really clunky, but clever <laughs> system. Yeah, I remember. And the only way you could find out information about these really was by going through all of these forums 
the DVX users and mm -hmm. the DV infos and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it was going through countless threads. And I thought, yeah, I'm just going to just have a place where I can just share my, my experience with it and see, I can hopefully help people out. Um, if they're thinking of going down this path and they can see you know, me trying out all this, all these gears, all these different adapters that I'm buying, mm -hmm. trying to get the most filmic look. And it was simply my, um, it sounds a bit trite, but it is, it is true. I did actually just want to give a little bit back because I was trained by such brilliant cameramen back in my news days. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to just to have, you know, I was taught, I was educated on the job and stuff like that. And, and I could already see the way things were going, that that wasn't happening anymore. And people were sort of floundering. So I just wanted to share my experiences and so hopefully people could learn a little bit from what I was doing. And that's kind of really basically what it started out as, is just simply just me giving a little bit back. And then it grew and grew and grew till it's the juggernaut that it is today and your, yeah. YouTube, and your YouTube. And when did you start your YouTube channel? Um, YouTube's a funny one. I mean, it started it a, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I can't even remember how long ago, uh, mm -hmm. but it, I mean, it must be about nine at least like two thousand, two thousand ten, two thousand eight, something like that. Oh well, bef yeah, before then, yeah. So I didn't really do much with it. Mm -hmm. It was just a place of putting up some stuff, and and really, I have to say, I mean, Vimeo was kind of my main place. It was mm -hmm. Exposure Room, and then Vimeo. Exposure mm -hmm. Room disappeared, mm -hmm. and Vimeo. And I used to use that as a place to put my work up to be seen because nice and clean platform. Mm -hmm. YouTube always struck me as a very noisy mm -hmm. uh, environment. Yep. And and I've actually grown to love YouTube for what it is. I've embraced it for what it is. And it, and it took me quite a few years to understand what needs to be done with it. And I've never really embraced it in in the full way that many have, because I think to, to truly do that, it's a full-time job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, hence it was YouTuber for me. So it's, it's just, I put up stuff every now and then, but uh, it's, and I'm not, I'm not a snob at all about these things. And, and you see this online when you talk about these things. People and they say, oh, no, I don't put my stuff on YouTube. Mm -hmm. The quality of the people who watch it, I'm near as good as quality people who watch it on Vimeo. I'm like, right, so you want to pick and choose your audience? Well, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> right. You want, you want everybody to watch it, surely. Sure. You want as many people to watch it as possible. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, that, and YouTube, is, for me, has now grown bigger for me uh, than, than Vimeo. Um, mm -hmm. I still use Vimeo uh, initially to put my stuff up. And then when I'm happy with it, I will then put it up onto YouTube because, as you know, you can't change the video on YouTube. You mm -hmm. have to just let it go. And it's not like I do daily vlogs or anything. It's when I put stuff up on YouTube, it's generally quite a crafted piece that I put up there. So it takes me a while to make it. So w when you approach a, a film or a series, uh, how, how do you approach it? How do you kind of like creatively go after a, a new job? Um, it, it's, that's a tricky one because it really depends on, on the type of work I do is so varied. Mm. And the, generally the way that work, I, I'm lucky enough to be in a position now where I don't have to actually knock on doors as such to find work. I still make new contacts and, and do things like that just for the, the normal way. But uh, I don't send my, uh, my, I don't try and contact people looking for work. It's, I get people contacting me with job offers and ideas. And, mm -hmm. and if it's something that interests me, then I will, then I'll, I'll go and, and work with it. And um, it really depends on what the job is. It can be, it's such a, a different process, for, you know, whether it's 
whether it's working on a documentary series or doing a corporate or um, branded content, for example. I mean, all of these things mm-hmm. have such different processes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's some parts of it which are, are very similar, which is, I think, the common ground on all of it would be filming. Because mm-hmm. on everything that I do, I'll always be filming something. Mm-hmm. But on other stuff, I may not be editing. I may not be doing any pre-production. Um, it really depends on on type of thing that I do. Now, you shoot a lot on location. Do you have any tips on lighting with natural light? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, lighting... Natural lighting is a wonderful thing. It's an unpredictable, uncontrollable thing frequently. And so whilst working with what there is is a nice, quick way of doing things, you can't use it for everything. Mm -hmm. um, The best thing I can suggest when when you are working with available light, I mean, I would always suggest having your own light as well. If you're going to try and do talking heads and interviews in a room, trying to do that on just available light or natural light, it, unless you've got continuous gray cloud outside or anything like that, it's just going to be a nightmare. But it is a case of working with what's there. Don't fight it. Embrace the light. Work. Find a location or room with a background that works with the windows and what there is. When you walk into a room that has lights on, turn them off and then see what the light's like and then turn um, the back on again if you want. So it's a case of just... Don't um, don't turn the camera on until you've you've figured out where the light is and how you can harness it. And I think too many people don't look at where the light is mm-hmm. before they, they they choose their background first, and then they go, oh, what about the light? The two should be hand in hand, especially if you're going to be working with natural light. You need to make make it work together very well. It's not. It's in other words, kind of roll with the punches when it comes to natural light, as opposed to trying to control it or manipulate it too much. I mean, you can control and manipulate it to a certain extent, but it's ever changing. So it's kind of like you know wrestling a wet cat. <laughs> yeah, it just it depends on what it is you're trying to film. Mm-hmm. If you're just trying to grab some shots here and there, it's you know you can work with it, and we you know lighting is not turning up the ISO on your camera, as you know, that <laughs> is a completely different thing. And right. Horrendous to think that some people actually do think that is what mm-hmm. lighting is. No, uh, we still need to lighting. Also, you know, it creates the mood, it creates everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I love natural light. Uh, but when I, when the natural light doesn't work for me, which is can easily be, you know, 75% of the time, mm-hmm. but that's when you start adding lights yourself. But in the most naturalistic way possible for me. It's all about finding the position where your lights can be that can looks like it's a motivated light source, like it could be the window. And that's what I could be doing. I could literally just be putting up a light to add to the window light, to take it over, to add a little bit more to it, to give it a bit more sparkle in case it changes. So I think that's kind of what you need to do with it. Um, and then there's lots of apps and things out there which you can use to see, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to scout locations beforehand and see where the sun will be, the light will be, and how that will affect things. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, if you're just doing things quickly, you just have to work with it. Um, and just be quick is my best advice. If you are going to work with natural light, don't faff around and start being undecided about what you're going to do. You just have to just go with it. Now, I, I know because I, I actually watched your, um, your uh, Skywalker Ranch video. 
that you did years yeah. ago, which was stunning. And and for any Star Wars fan, that is Mecca. Um, so <laughs> I watched it. I found it online. I was like, wow. And then you were shooting it with a DSLR, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was a that was an interesting time. So that was back in oh 2009, and. They contacted me, and it's um, it's a fun, it's a nice story because uh, <laughs> I'm a huge Star Wars fan, have mm-hmm. been since I saw the first Star Wars back mm-hmm. in '77, and um, they emailed me, and uh, I didn't reply. So <laughs> Lucasfilm emailed me, and I didn't reply because <laughs> I'm terrible with emails, yeah. and. You know, I have a PA now and it makes things better, but you know, she does my work email. She doesn't do my personal emails and I'm still rubbish with my personal emails, sure. but I was still, I was still bad then. And, um, I missed it. And then that, <laughs> they called me and I didn't, I'm rubbish with voicemails, terrible with voicemails. <laughs> I'll, they'll be like, uh, uh, you know, you have 60 new voicemails. Right. Got mind. it. I mean, um, but I actually did play it back. I played one back. Uh, about a day after it was left and it was producer Rick McCallum who said, uh, dropped you an email last week and, uh, tried to call you. And it's strange that we've not heard back from you. Um, <laughs> uh, I think basically I don't think anybody never, nobody ignores and I wasn't ignoring. I'm just rubbish. Uh, right, right. No one ever ignores an email I, or a phone call from George Lucas. Yeah, <laughs> I immediately called them back and apologized. And they just said that you know, they, they want to know what this can 5d Mark II is about. Mm-hmm. If it's any good, they have, um, second world war movie that they're currently shooting called red tails mm-hmm. and they've got some other plans for other stuff that they just want to, they just don't know what the quality is like um they've got one they've messed around with it but they're not they don't really know much about it so could i come over to skywalker ranch for maybe <laughs> a few days and um give them some advice and i was like yeah sure well, actually uh, uh, i was actually i was booked on a job oh yeah i was booked on a job to, uh, it was short notice it was like can you come out next week mm-hmm. and i was booked for like three weeks mm-hmm. and so i i phoned up the production manager of the job i was on mm-hmm. and gave the sob story of like you know how important star wars was to my life and, <laughs> and then eventually got to the bit that i said and they've asked me to come over there next week to work with them and she said to me why don't you tell me that at the beginning 10 minutes ago <laughs> yeah that's fine I understand totally. No problem. I'll let you, I'll let you off the job. Oh. And uh, yeah, so I went out there and I shot with it, um, around the ranch, mm-hmm. which, um, was, uh, I didn't have long to do it at all. And they just wanted to see it. Didn't want me to shoot any test charts or anything like that. They weren't interested in that. They wanted to see what it looked like projected. So I just shot some stuff around the ranch and I went into their, um, into the, the main house mm-hmm. and into the screening room. And it was a hell of an experience because it was, um, so it was Rick McCallum there mm-hmm. and George Lucas <laughs> and his, his, his visiting director friend, Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> and legendary sound designer and editor, Ben Burt. Ben Burt's there. And so they're, they're going to this and. What, Dennis, Mi- been, Dennis, Mir- Dennis, Dennis Murin didn't no, show No, he, was, he, was, he wasn't there. <laughs> and I cut the stuff on my laptop in the room. I went, eh, it looks all right. A bit noisy, uh, a bit of aliasing there, a bit of moray. Oh, it's all right. Oh, God. And I didn't know they were going to screen it on, on the big screen. So sure. I took it when I took it in there. And I had, it's one of the things I would like to have seen it on the big screen before anybody else saw it, just to check it. Mm-hmm. So the first time I ever saw 
Canon 5D Mark II stuff projected was at that point. And it looked beautiful. It looked so much better than it did on the computer mm-hmm. through their, their magical, I don't know what pr- amazing projector they had. It sure. just looked fantastic. Mm-hmm. And they loved it. So it was a hell of an experience. And then didn't you get to work a little bit on Red Tails? Yeah, so I did some shoots. I uh, did some stuff for them up at um, in Sonoma for a mm-hmm. couple of weeks, and then in Prague um, a few months later as well. So I did about three weeks' work on on the uh, on the movie, and it was that was it was crazy because there was me with my little 5D Mark II, and I also had a 1D Mark IV mm-hmm. as well. Did I have a 7D as well? Maybe a 7D. I can't remember. I think I did. I had a 7D modified to PL as well. So I had these three cameras uh, to, to switch between. And um, they they were shooting on um, Sony F35s, mm-hmm. so big beasts, and you know proper cinema crew. And sure, it looks like it's just a monster. So you know, I would be there to get an angle they hadn't thought of because I was so nimble mm-hmm. and able to just slot in and find things with mm-hmm. my eye. What I did. And I was able to be set up and ready within like two minutes. <laughs> and these guys were like 45 minutes to an hour just to repo each position. Of course. Uh, so it was, it was, it was fun. And it was, it, it's a fun drinking game watching a movie. Um, <laughs> boy, I can't do it because I, I would kill myself. Cause I, there's 150 shots uh-huh. of my film. Really? So yeah. That's insane. So I, know, I, I know every single one of the shots when it comes on. And of course they've graded it beautifully and you couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not for what people initially thought of, oh, you must be using it for like cockpit cameras and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I'm like, no, oh, because they're not really the cockpits. They're obviously it's a stage. Mm-hmm. And they're on um they're on gimbals and there's a techno crane and sure. yeah. So my camera was not for getting those really like small space type stuff. It was really just I was the small camera to find small spaces and get angles that they couldn't or hadn't thought of beforehand. Now, you would you agree that they found you basic? Did they find you because of your blog, and because you were the oh, yeah. one kind of talking about the SLRs a lot? Yeah, I think. It, I mean, without question, it was, it was the when the five D came along. Uh, I, I didn't embrace it straight away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vincent Lafray did Reverie, of course, in November two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and I. I played with the. I bought the Nikon D90 a month before that. Hated it. Mm-hmm. I was so excited by the concept of DSLRs, having a large sensor to be able to shoot video. But mm-hmm. the quality of the, the Nikon D90 was so bad. And then I saw the 5D Mark II and went, "That looks cool." But I have no Canon glass, and it only shoots 30p. And I need to shoot 25p mm-hmm. and 24p. Mm-hmm. So this is no good to me. Um, but I, I did get to try it for the first time in May. And then realized you could you can get past the, the lens limitations and also the fact that there was no manual control mm-hmm. by using old Nikon glass with an adapter. Mm-hmm. And, and also found a way of converting the 30p to 25p to make it look okay. And so yeah, so I was I you know, once I, I did once I figured that out, I really just loved it. And and I think that's kind of, you know, a lot of people saw my stuff and saw what I was doing and picked up from there. Now, can you? Because I have I have a love hate relationship with DSLRs because I've 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 yeah. graded I've graded probably about five features that were shot on the DSLRs and they've never shot properly. If you shoot the yeah. DSLR properly, like you did on Red Tails, I'm sure it looks. And I'm I, I know I saw the movie; it looks great. Um, yeah. But 
most people don't know how to shoot DSLRs properly. It gets too grainy. Like one movie I had was like in the movie, in the, in the woods at night with no light. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, yeah. why is there so much grain? I'm like, guys, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, we have, we, it's not, it's, it just couldn't work. So what tips do you have with uh, shooting DSLRs? Now the DSLRs also that you shot Red Tails with are much different than they are now uh, with the A7S yeah. S2 that can literally yeah. look into into the darkness of of hell <laughs> and still yeah. stay clean. But what ex- what what kind of tips do you have when shooting DSLRs for filmmakers who want to shoot a feature or a short and try to get the most out of that camera? It's funny, you know, it has been quite a few years now since they first came out. And the yet yeah, the image quality has come on enormously. Yeah. Um, but the the the, co- the the key core issue, principles that we need to stick to are very much the same. Um, you need to if you're going to use a handheld, you need to have it on uh, some some sort of rig just to stabilize a little bit. Because unless you have one, you know, one of these five-axis stabilized sensors, mm-hmm. then that's going to help you as well. But um, that's one of the the first things is just make sure if you are going to shoot handheld, just be aware of the terrible uh, issues we can have with rolling shutter, which is a huge giveaway for DSLRs. Is that horrible? micro vibrations that we can really see not just jello not just like rolling shutter mm-hmm. you said that you know that you know i'm talking about it really, sure. really looks like oh my god like somebody's had too much caffeine sure while they're holding the camera so be careful of that you know use an is lens stabilized lens if you haven't got that but it's um know what your camera performs best at with its isos and you know yes many of the cameras you know the a7s2 uh, you can push your camera much higher uh, but you still need to expose correctly. So that's one of the things that people aren't doing right. And I do not recommend shooting log uh, format on any of the DSLRs w- with 8-bit codecs, mm-hmm. which is pretty much all of them except the GH5. Mm-hmm. And even then, it's it's still a little bit challenging. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a hell of a codec. Mm-hmm. Um, the GH5 log, it's, 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 it's really hard to grade. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would suggest... Um, know, you know, know, know how far you can push your ISO... Mm-hmm. And then only use it for extreme purposes. It's not a replacement for lighting. It's a way of hopefully being able to film in environments that you couldn't normally film in. Uh, that, that's basically what DSLRs were excited to me about was, was apart from the size and the optics was just, the, just um, I, I think it was the, the ability to push that low light up a little bit like that. And I think when the A7S 2 came out or the A7S came out initially, it wasn't the fact that I could film in, moonlight mm-hmm. it was the fact that i could film in street light but not wide open mm-hmm. which is what too many people are still doing when shooting on dslrs mm-hmm. that's the other tip is just because you've got a f1.4 lens doesn't mean you should shoot at f1.4 yeah. for every single shot right it's incredibly hard to keep focus we do have some cameras coming out now with pretty decent autofocus um but it's still not necessarily the way to go. That's a different thing. I would use that for certain things like interviews and stuff like that. Other than that, it's being sensible with it, being sensible. So I would say the key things are going to be don't be shooting wide open. Keep your camera stable if you can as much as possible. Uh, don't push your ISO too far. And don't fall into temptation of shooting log unless you absolutely have to. You know, proper video cameras with 10-bit codecs to shoot log, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
8-bit compressed codecs, oh, whether it's a drone oh, or a DSLR. Yes. It's, it's a nightmare, and you spend so much time in post mm. just trying to hide all the problems, which if you hadn't done that in the first place, you wouldn't be doing. Now, uh, one thing I, I really do like about your your work is that you are, at least it seems from your blog and from your, your YouTube channel, that you are not married to any one camera. You're not like, I'm only the Canon guy, I'm only a Blackmagic guy, I'm only an Icon guy, I'm only an Airy guy. You you use multiple cameras depending on your job. Can you mm. can you suggest or, or show people how, or advice on how you could pick the right camera for the right job, which I think is so, so important, because I think sometimes they're just trying to use a hammer to screw in a light yeah. bulb. <laughs> it's like, it, just because yeah. you love that hammer, it, there are other tools. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. Um, back in the Canon days, I was approached to be um, one of their ambassadors, and I said no, because I wanted to. I didn't want to be tied to any format. I, I, I had an independent voice. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to lose that. And I also didn't want to lose out on the fact that, I, you know, other people are going to make cool cameras and they're fun. I don't want to be like, oh, no, I can't use this because I'm signed in, signed up with these guys. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm... Uh, and, and I'm always going to be like this because I, uh, I'm very fickle and I will fall in love with a camera and then something else will come along and turn my head and go, oh, I'm going to use this now. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, when it comes to like, photography, um, I, my main cameras are Pentax and, and Fuji cameras. Mm -hmm. and, and so, but when it comes to video, I, my main video cameras are Sony, but I also have Canon ones as well. And I have lots of different types of, of them. And, and I guess I am lucky that I can be in that position of saying the right tool for the right job. And obviously, if you, you've only got one camera, then you are going to be a little bit stuck and kind of that's your, your camera for the job. But if it's, if it's important, then I would certainly try you know, and rent it or, or find somebody who's got something that would be more appropriate for your job. Because you're right, it's... it's you see people using totally the wrong cameras. Mm -hmm. I mean, when it could be something as simple as, uh, uh, you could have a chuckle about it, but somebody trying to use um, a Blackmagic um, Ursa Mini for, for wedding videos. I'm like, you're crazy. <laughs> why what are you, you trying to do? <laughs> yeah, but I'm shooting, yeah, I can shoot raw. I can shoot raw. I'm like, why are you shooting raw in the first place for a wedding video? <laughs> and a camera that you can't put over 800 ISO. <laughs> and a wedding video with no control of your lighting and probably no lights. Sure. You're crazy. Get yeah. yourself an A7S II. Right. You know, and so somebody who's, oh, I want to do, you know, some visual effects and uh, it's all going to be green screen and stuff like that. I'm shooting on an A7S. And I'll be like, well, why? That's the wrong <laughs> camera for you for doing this. Right. You should get yourself Blackmagic um, Ursa Mini. Because that shoots raw and that shoots 10-bit progress and that's going to be much better for you and it's still pretty cheap mm -hmm. and you, you're, it's already and it's lit it's already lit because it has to be because in a studio and, and green screen so you don't have to worry about the fact that you don't you can't push your ISO right so I mean that, you know that's that's the best thing about like the Black Magics is is working in lit controlled locations mm -hmm. they do really well at that as long as you don't have to push it too far. Because they're the cheapest cameras I know of that have a terrific inbuilt codec of ProRes. Oh, it's gorgeous. And have RAW if you need it. You know, having to deal with all of these nasty compressed B-frame codecs all the time, 8-bit ones, when you get a camera that just shoots straight ProRes, you're like, oh, no transcoding. Oh, my edit system works with it. And I can grade it. It doesn't fall apart. Wow, fantastic. So that's kind of 
what you need to look at is what but if you know if you say if you don't have the camera then it's a bit harder i mean I, interestingly i read on i was reading facebook today and a dp guy i know and he was asking about uh, time lapse mm-hmm. he's got a red um, epic w mm-hmm. and he's complaining about the fact that the time lapse ability of the camera is basically lacking in that you can't do more than one frame a second mm-hmm. and so you can't do long exposures right tool for the right job this is a seventy thousand, whatever it is dollar yeah, camera right just get a, a two thousand dollar dslr and that's gonna shoot raw shoot long exposure shoot for everything you wanted to totally right. the right job and it doesn't, doesn't tie up your seventy or thousand dollar camera doing a time lapse so yeah, I think, um, I think, I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of times uh, filmmakers, DPs, they, they they spend seventy grand on a camera and they want it to do everything and be perfect for everything. And a lot of times, you're right. You you have that ability in, uh, in your work has shown it that you could just like you know what I yes I have a seventy thousand dollar camera, but you know it's like I have a Porsche, but I'm not going to drive to the supermarket with the Porsche where I could easily either just walk <laughs> or yeah. or or drive my Prius. You know, it's just the right tool for the right job, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, I suppose if you have spent seventy thousand, you're kind of insistent on the fact that, oh my God, I'm going to get every single last penny's worth <laughs> out of this camera. Right. But you know, I said this um, in in uh, many times, and I, I've also got this policy now of not wanting to. I'm never going to buy a camera over ten thousand dollars again, mm-hmm. and I've done that like three times now. Yes. Uh, before that, and now it's just. There's loads of great cameras sub ten thousand. Oh God, yes. Which do so much, and if you need anything more, then just rent it because it's just not worth it. Because they get cha- they get you know superseded so quickly these days, mm-hmm. and it's just not really worth spending all that money, especially in a system that you could end up changing. You know, reds require so many bits and pieces, and maybe you're, then you'll switch to Ari. Who knows? But it's I just think there's so many great cameras out there for for the sub that, and just just stick with that really uh unless you're you're super rich because uh, i i i bought a sony f55 and well that was the last time i bought a really expensive camera Mm -hmm. and i loved it it was amazing and then the fs7 came out (laughs) and it did everything i needed it to do for documentaries without me worrying about my hugely expensive camera Mm -hmm. being potentially damaged and stuff like that so i found that it was sitting on the shelf right for like Six months hadn't really been touched, and the FS7 was being used all the time. And so I sold it. Mm-hmm. And that was when I decided this is silly. I should never, you know, I'm not going to buy an expensive camera again. So, because uh, the FS7 did everything I needed it to do, it right. didn't shoot raw easily, mm-hmm. uh, but didn't matter because I didn't need to shoot raw. Right. Most people right didn't shoot raw. Right. right so, yeah, the right tool. Yeah. And um, I'm a huge fan of the Black Magics. I shot my feature on the 2.5K cinema. Yeah. And the pocket is arguably some of the most beautiful images come out of that little camera, you know, again, right tool for the right job. You know, if I'm going to go shoot an IMAX, this is not the tool for you, but if you're creating this kind of almost super 16 style uh, film look out of the box, that, that little pocket camera is amazing. And the Ursa mini is, is one of the most underrated, I think cameras out there because it's not as sexy as the red or the Alexa, but man, Mm. it, it has a bite. Would you agree? Yeah, um, I haven't shot anything properly myself with the uh, the 4.6 Ursa Mini. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really liked what I got with it, though. I had definitely had issues with, as a, from a documentary background, with mm-hmm. the fact that I, in, in for available light, I would I knew I was going to come a cropper, mm-hmm. and there were some quirks here and there which slowed me down. Uh, but 
I thought for the money, the image was fantastic. And I've always found it disappointing that they, well, they went with originally with the uh, the Ursa, which was the craziest camera. I oh, the Ursa one? Oh, the first one was horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was funny. I mean, I went to trade shows. Yes. And, and I remember the first time I, I picked it up, uh, I, I just, you know, in front of them, they let me pick it up. And I went, holy crap. And they went, yeah, we don't really consider this a handheld camera. <laughs> I'm like, what? What kind of world do you what, live in? <laughs> what is that? It was, it was, you know, every, a camera should be anything. You shouldn't sure. just, like, yeah, we, consider the, we consider this a tripod camera. I'm like, oh, blimey. <laughs> sure, a studio camera is a tripod camera, but this is crazy. Sure. Um, but I just wish they'd developed the pocket camera further. I wish they'd oh, made a version of that. Because that really is, I think it's my favorite camera that I that I bought from them. In, yes, in size and form, it had loads oh. of issues as well. But what it gave you was astonishing in the package. Oh, it, and, it, it, I wish yeah. they would do four K. Like if they could do four K in that little camera with RAW and ProRes yeah. and handle the damn battery issue, it's just yeah, just uh, just do something better with the battery. You have to plug in a juice box or something like that. Now to with a juice box, it'll run six seven hours. But still, it's like a little bit more bulky, but. God, that little camera is good. And the Micro Four Thirds opens you up to so much glass, especially vintage yeah. glass. That uh, I'm a big vintage glass guy, and it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's, it really is gorgeous. It is a wonderful camera. Yeah, it's just a shame that they didn't really. I know they just seem to just forgot. It's forgotten about it, and you know, they have their micro camera, whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. It's just not the same. It's not the same thing. It's uh, so I don't know if they'll, they'll ever go back to that. The S Mini Pro looks. I have never played with it. It looks like it solves many of the operational issues they that have. I had with the previous one. So they have solved it. I shot a I shot a series with it, and uh, I shot with the new one and the old one, uh, yeah. both, and they both worked like champs. But the the brand new one that they just released with time code on the on the side and everything, yeah. it, it it solved. It's a tank now. It really is a tank. And it's it, like you're right. If you push it a little too, it's not. It, I always I, I did a test between the Airy Alexa and the um and the Ursa Mini. And I shot them down the middle, and when you shoot them down the middle, man, yeah, it's pretty damn close. It's definitely not. You can tell it's not worth spending eighty grand or whatever the Alexa costs now, um, comparatively uh, uh, down the middle. No. You just start seeing where the Alexa is worth it when you start pushing her, uh, when you start pushing yeah. the on the darks, and and the highlights get clipped a little bit. So if you go a little bit up or down is where you start getting. But if you shoot it down the middle, oh, it's good. Best yeah. bang for your buck. But let me ask you though, if you were given mm-hmm. somebody said, "I'm going to swap out your Ursas for Arielexas mm-hmm. for free," you'd go, "Yeah, right. Of course you would. Mm-hmm. We all would because mm-hmm. they're amazing." Um, but I get you're right. It's uh, unless uh, uh, the only people I know who who own Alexas mm-hmm. who are smart bought Alexas are DPs who rent them to the productions. Sure, of course. So that's those are people who who should be buying Alexas. The rest of us should be um, renting them in when we need them. Absolutely. Now, do you have any advice on how you test a new camera? Which I know a lot of filmmakers get their cameras, and they really don't know how to push it or test it or you know put it through the through the ringer a little bit to see if it's even worth it. Yeah. Um, so for me, it, it, it totally, it's totally real world. It's it's taking out of. I don't, I don't really, I don't work in the studios as such. I, I do work indoors and things like that, but I don't work in studios. So I, I want to see how it works with unpredictable lighting. 
I want to see how it operates as a camera. Mm-hmm. Is how slow it is to to to, to figure out. Um, I think the last camera I, I tested was the Canon C two hundred, and I kind of I actually really like it. It's a bit of a, a strange, quirky camera in that it has a terrific. <laughs> In in inbuilt ability to record twelve bit raw internally, mm-hmm. and yet the the if you can't do raw, then you have to do an eight bit right for two zero codec, which is so bizarre to have no middle ground. But I mean, we all know it's a, a Canon protecting its other cameras mm-hmm. issue, right? But it's uh, but other than that, it's actually a really nice image and a really nice camera. And for me, I just wanted to see the things which that it was a selling point really, which was the the raw the autofocus and just what the 8-bit codec was like Mm -hmm. so those are kind of the the headline features i was looking at to see what they're like and it's like when i'm getting my hands on the um the eva1 from panasonic um what i want to see is um what this dual iso is going to like what sort of noise levels am i going to get because you know the selling point is that you can shoot in low light conditions by switching to different the higher native uh, setting mm-hmm. so I want to see what that's like so it's kind of I look at the headline features of the camera and go okay I need to see what this actually is like and then as well do the everyday sort of bread and butter type stuff to see how it actually works for real use because obviously you need to if that it may well have a really cool feature but if it doesn't operate as a camera well just generally then it's, it's a bit pointless right. and it takes me back to when I saw the was when the Sony A7S came out, mm-hmm. and it, yeah. it was going all about all about how amazing the low light was, mm-hmm. and they released um, a video, uh, and it was I watched it and I was like, okay, that looks nice, it's, it's nicely shot, and it was like fishermen in Scotland or something, mm-hmm. and it was all shot high ISO, and it showed you I can't remember exactly what it was, like sixty four thousand like, or something like that. It right? didn't look like nighttime; it looked like daytime or something, right? And which was fine, but because it, it was like that all the way through, I had no sense of any that, of what it was doing. And so I got the camera on loan from them um, just before it was released and went, all right, I'm going to take this down down to uh, Bryson in, in South of England and then just really just see what this is like. And, and so I, I did a video and I shot it where I did a – this is what it looks like to the eye, which mm-hmm. is like 800 ISO. Mm-hmm. And then I shot it at 25,600 ISO, which did turn it into like daylight. Mm-hmm. And having this, trans, having this ability to do this transition show, this is what I see and this is what this shows. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's kind of a way to sell the cameras, to be honest with you, because you saw straight away that it was like, ah, and now I get it. I get what it, how amazing this is because I didn't get it before because mm-hmm. everything was just, everything just looked okay, looked fine. Um, so it's, that's kind of what I, when I'm looking at cameras, that's kind of, I just want to see what makes this special. Now, what are three of your go-to lenses if you're on a desert island? <laughs> I know, it's like picking your children. <laughs> it's, you know, it's that question, you know, at least you didn't say one. Uh, actually, one's easier, one's easier. And always, you didn't tell me which size sensor, which sensor we're talking here. Full uh, frame? Let's, right. let's say full frame. Okay. All right, then... That's easier. So I would say a 50 millimeter is my first lens without question, mm-hmm. because as lo- it's, it's the relative field of view of what we see with our eyes. So I, I do love that standard field of view, and I can shoot pretty much everything on that. Um, and then it gets really tricky 
because my favorite walk around lens is a 35 mil. Which, which brand? And I, I love that. Which brand? And, you know, I don't really have any, um, you talk my focal lens or brands? Brands, well? brand, brand, like, like the Ooh. Canon Nikkor. Oh, Damn, this is getting really, really hard then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, so if, if you, you know, if you want really beautiful, sharp images, then the Sigma art lenses are fantastic. Oh, they're so amazing. If you want, uh, they're incredible. But if you want some, you know, a little bit more character, then sure, some of the older um, Nikkors are always good for that sort of thing. Got they're it. Nice and cheap. Um, do you use a lot of Do you use a lot of vintage glass, or do you ever play with it? Occasion, occasionally, um, not as much as I used to. I used to, uh, these days I tend to use a lot more, um, more detailed, sharper lenses. Um, but I, I still, I still do. I, you know, when I'm doing any lens whacking, free lensing, I use mm-hmm. my old vintage glass and a lot more for stills. I do for stills as well. Um, but for video, probably less so, but I don't really, oh, it's a horrible question to ask because, um, I just, <laughs> I love really, I love long telephotos as well. Sure. Yeah, it's the right tool for the right job. I know. It's like it's a yeah. t- it's a tough question. If someone asks me, I have a couple of lenses that I go to all the time. Uh, but and there's a couple of fun ones that I uh, I play with. Like uh, I have oh, a pet- actually, huh? Canon got a great one that I've recently bought. Um, Seventy to three hundred. Yes. It's not a standard constant aperture. It's not their white one. It's their their non L series one. But it's new ish, mm-hmm. like last year. Mm-hmm. And it's not that expensive. It's got crazy fast autofocus for doing stills. And build quality is great. It's light. And the optics are great. And it gives you a huge range. So 70 to 300. Nice What's the, um, how fast is so it? It's, uh, it's uh, 35 to 5.6, I think. Okay. So it's outdoors. Uh, but it, yeah, it's an outdoor lens. But, you know, if you, if you want a lens, which is, uh, you know, you've, you're going to limit me to three. I'm going to cheat with a long, big long zoom that's going to cover a big range. Got it. I still have a fast 50 mil for my primes. And then uh, wide angles, I love my big wide angles as well. But, Mm -hmm. you know, my my biggest wide angle I've got that is not for shy is 10 mil, which is ridiculous. And that's a Voigtlander Mm -hmm. for in-mount. Oh, you have one of the Voigtlander. It's it's Voigtlander make amazing glass, I have to say. They do. But that 10 mil is like... I bring it with and I put it on and I take a couple of shots with it. Um, I think I've shot video with it twice, maybe briefly sure. because it's too wide. It's just ridiculous. It's, 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 it's an effect lens. So, so my favorite actual white, my favorite focal length for doing white is actually around 20, 20 yeah. mil. Oh really? Around, yeah. I do like wider than that, but it's, you know, it's, it can just find myself a little bit too, it can be a little bit too wide. So tw- 24 is a, is, a, is a good sort of middle ground. Like mm-hmm. Sigma make a great 24 mil, mm-hmm. uh, 0.4. They make a 20 mil um, as well. Their 18 to 35 is amazing. Their art lens. Yeah, if, you, if you've got for crop sensors, that 18 to 35 is fantastic. Yeah. So and I've, that, and I, that, I, gives you a 20, that gives you your 24 to um, your 24 70 full frame equivalent. So it's a, it's a great lens. Now, if, uh, if you want to talk about wide, my favorite wide I have is the, um, the Canoptic. 5.7 um micro four thirds but it doesn't fish it doesn't fish eye that's impressive isn't it, it? Is, it's the it's the kubrick lens it's what he shot um his the big brother of that is the 9.8 
which is for 35. That one is for 16. Right. So I use it with the pocket and with the pocket, it just, oh, it's amazing, but it doesn't fisheye. So uh, if you remember the scenes from The Shining in the, yeah. that's all shot with a Canoptic as well as the, the, right before the rape scene in Clockwork Orange, that was shot with the Canoptic. Uh, it's one of his, it was one of his go-to lenses uh, in his yeah. in his series, but it's gorgeous. It's such a gorgeous lens. Sorry, we're geeking out. <laughs> no, that's, that's cool. No, I mean, I, I do love my wide angles, and as I say, now I've bought the ten and stuff like that. But um, yeah, a sort of like a, a sixteen thirty five mm-hmm. zoom is always a good is a good yes. You know, it's one of these things. If people ask for advice and they say, "What three lenses should I buy?" Mm-hmm. My advice tends to be, of course, first question is, "How much money have you got?" Right. There's no point giving them any advice because. It's such a, you know, it's, it's an impossible question to answer unless There's they thousands. give you a budget. There's th- and and yeah. lenses and what kind, what camera are you going to be using it on and what are you exactly. going to do, shooting film or video, uh, I mean, or photo or, or motion. It's, yeah, it's it's a very big question, has many multiple answers. Now, do you have any tips? With, on, go ahead. Yeah, I, just, I mean, just with the 5D, and, it, just, and, it's, and it's, it hasn't really changed. It's from 5D. It's simply, you have the three, the three zooms, your 1635, your 2470, your 70-200, Mm-hmm. That covers everything, and then you have a fast prime mm-hmm. for everything else, the 51.4, and that's kind of what you need to go. But that's thousands, you know. It's If, if, you, if you're shooting documentaries, you kind of want that flexibility. If you're shooting features and, and narrative-type stuff, mm-hmm. then um, you can shoot on, on primes and, and not – because the, the joy of a zoom is the speed, which you need when you're shooting documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. Then you can, you can go with cheaper, more vintage primes. So it's a massive question. Yes. You know. <laughs> That's a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about your master class, your new, uh, the new sure. course that you put together for MZ. Yeah. Can you talk about yeah. what the course is about and what students can expect in the class? Yeah, it's, um, I would say it's pretty much my 27 years of um, experience and knowledge as much as possible, just distilled into effectively what it's like nine episodes, one, three, one, and eight main episodes. Mm-hmm. It like runs to like nine and a half hours or so. <laughs> uh, and, and it's, um, I just want to, initially MZ asked me to do something about drones mm-hmm. and I went, yeah, cool. But I don't think that's going to be, there's no way I can possibly feel much more than, you know, a couple of hours just mm-hmm. on that. And, and I said, what, then I made the mistake of suggesting, what if we did it about everything, everything that I do, every type of filming style that I do? And they went, yeah, cool. And so then I realized just what I was letting myself in for because I started breaking it down. Uh, before I, I should have done that before I suggested it to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, it was going to be a six-hour course. Mm-hmm. And by the time I started editing, I was like, guys, it's going to be a lot longer than six hours because... I knew that when I was filming it, that it was going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Because once you start talking about a subject, you realize you need to go down a path. So when I was breaking it down in pre-production, that's what we needed to do and figuring out which episodes, what topics we should cover. Um, that was kind of, you know, where I realized, you know, it was a very good thing to actually make discipline wise because it did require a lot of pre-production. Otherwise it just was not going to be a, a a practical thing to shoot because it's sure. big enough as it was. And so I went through the topics that I really wanted to cover. Um, the first one is the, you know, the first episode is quite dull in, in respect because it's just me in my kitchen, but mm-hmm. it's me explaining all of the stuff you actually do need to understand um, before you go out and shoot, which is all the technical stuff, uh, a little bit of history as to where, why we're using these cameras and 
some of the the, flaw, the problems we can have with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going through everything you needed to know, uh, squeezed into like an hour and 20 minutes. And then I went out and then I realized the next episode was, okay, now I've got all that stuff out of the way. Mm-hmm. I can just focus on being creative. And then it was, I've never really, uh, composition is one of these things that's been very natural to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always I've been asked, so how can I improve my composition? And I'm always like, oh, well, you can always read books and to understand how what you're looking for for composition. Mm-hmm. But then you need to then you need to experiment, and then you need to watch movies and TV shows and see how they do things and see what you like. And and so that's kind of why this, this, the 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 first episode, so the second episode, was all about showing what different lenses do and showing how cool a, you know, a long telephoto can be mm. on a subject mm-hmm. and bringing a background closer to a person and the effect it can have compared to say a standard lens and a wide angle lens and then showing people how to move the camera when not to move the camera showing all these toys that can distract you when to use them i mean it was just there's so much in this course mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I think it's it's one of these things that if you look at the the, the list of the topics that only really exp- explains half of what you're learning or there's not even that from just what it is. So like people will say, Oh, there's no episode on lighting. I'm like, well, no, because lighting is in every single, every episode, same with sound. Sure. Sound is in every single episode. I didn't want to do one because it's all filmed on location. Mm-hmm. I want to tackle things real world, much like I, I've always, want, I always want to do my reviews. And it was like an extension of that. I wanted to show, okay, so I'm going to do this episode about interviews. So this is how you deal with going to a location and, you, you know, you don't have the right room. You've got to work with the light. What are the issues with the lights? What's the problems with the sound we have here? What could our background be? And it was really trying to take things as realistically as possible mm-hmm. and, and literally having real problems that I had to solve during the actual shoot and showing them how I would deal with it. So that was kind of what I was trying to get with it. Well, I'm I'm excited to to watch it myself, and I will definitely put all the information in the show notes um, for this episode for everyone to take a look at. Now, uh, I have a few few more questions if you have some time. Sure, yeah, sure. Um, you've traveled pretty much all over the planet at this point in your career. Do you have yeah. any travel hacks for filmmakers? Uh, in what respects? Uh, in the words of traveling, packing, getting things through. Uh, oh. I mean, like, you know, Ooh. getting cheaper deals or even just even be able to pack all your gear, what gear to bring, what don't overpack. Yeah. Everything. Like, there's a bunch of stuff. Any any tips at all? Because I know. Yeah, yeah. In, in today's big... world, traveling, yeah, traveling with a bunch of gear and keeping it safe and you're, you're walking around with 20,000 bucks in your backpack. You know, it's like. <laughs> It's it's pretty yeah, rough. It's, it's the worst thing about my job by far <laughs> is the uh, traveling. It's not the, the it's not the, the it's the traveling bit itself. It's not being in other places. That's the coolest bit. Sure, it's the getting there is the worst bit. It is, and it's the most stressful thing is packing and figuring out what you need, your weight allowances, and whenever I'm booked on jobs. Uh, you know, I need to look at flights, routes, and see who flies there because I know which airlines have the better baggage policies. Uh, you're, you're lucky you live in the States mm-hmm. and you think you have bad baggage policies there. You do not. <laughs> Yours are great. Even your worst baggage allowance policy with an airline is amazing compared to what we have to do with here. There's like two airlines that fly out uh, that 
uh, the UK airlines, mm-hmm. which are British Airways and Virgin mm-hmm. Atlantic, who mm-hmm. charge you per bag. Everybody else charges you per kilo. Oh my! So God. that is where things start getting crazy expensive. So I think the most I've ever spent on excess baggage um, probably about three and a half thousand pounds each way. Three and a half thousand pounds. Yeah, and that was it. Was a it was a job in in Japan, and the client had insisted on flying via Amsterdam with KLM. And KLM mm-hmm. charge per kilo. And I told them this is going to be expensive. And they didn't listen to me. And then they had to pay it. And mm-hmm. so you choose the airlines for a reason. Um, you, it's, it's worth if you're flying internally in the US. So if, you, so if I fly to the US, mm-hmm. um, you get like two bags. Mm-hmm. There's your minimum allowance. But if you fly anywhere else from, um, from London, you get one bag. So I guess you guys have just managed to negotiate um, a better thing. And we, th- and we think it's, it's horrible. Uh, it's absolutely atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's worth if you can get some media accreditation because there's a number of airlines which give you better deals. Um, sure. Southwestern, um, Delta, um, United, a couple of others. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a few of them out there which, you know, if you've got proper media accreditation, mm-hmm. can save you um, a lot. I mean, Delta will also, you know, are quite good in that they will let you I think it's like 50 bucks. It'll probably change. It's mm-hmm. like 50 bucks per bag up to a hundred pounds, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Um, but just remember that the important stuff always has to be carried with you. Mm-hmm. And, and we're supposed to carry out our, our, our lithium ion batteries mm-hmm. as, as carry on luggage. So know your rights with the airlines, because I guarantee you they don't know your rights. So you will, they will tell you something and like, actually, no, if you look at the policy on your website, this shows you what you're allowed. And they mm. go, oh, let me check on my, and they go, and then they'll confer with somebody else. So this happens all the time. So you need to understand what you are allowed and what you can't do. If, you know, if it comes to batteries, you've got to be careful about the watt hours you have on some of the drone batteries, some of the larger camera batteries. You know, you can, you can only take like two per person. Mm-hmm. So make sure you fly with somebody else who can help you out with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do check um, a lot of expensive stuff. Uh, you have to mm-hmm. because of you know your carry-on limits and sure, what you course. can take. Sure. And I don't use Peli cases or Pelican cases. Mm-hmm. The simple reason being is yes, they offer great protection, but they look expensive. Yep. And stealable. Yep. And so my luggage looks really unfilm gear like. It's still really protected inside. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't look like it from the outside. It looks like average luggage. And if you know, if you can get the pinkest, most colourful, garish looking luggage <laughs> with Hello Kitty stickers on, do it. Do it because it doesn't look valuable and nobody's gonna steal it. <laughs> That's great advice, uh, actually. That's awesome advice. Really, yeah. I really think a Pelly should um, Pelican should make a series of um, pink. <laughs> yeah, I, you know when I have had um, to, to fly with with these hard cases, whether it be like for a Moby or um, a, a drone, or you know, an Inspire, then I cover them with stickers mm-hmm. like superheroes and stuff like that. I really do my my those hard cases have got Superman stickers on everything. It just doesn't look 
like professional film gear anymore. I try to disguise it as much as possible. Got it. Um, it's it, there's, it's a big old topic and it's a difficult one and it's and then you get because certain countries will need you if you're taking professional film gear in to be to have a proper document a carne mm-hmm. which costs a lot of money and you need to have everything itemized and listed. Um, but some countries won't accept that mm-hmm. and you have to negotiate with them beforehand or find out what you needed to have there. And this is why sometimes it's, it's really nice just to go with a small DSLR style camera and just try and not be obvious if it's, if it's difficult to going to be to, to, or too expensive to, to have that, then it's try and go in, but you are always going to have a risk. If you are doing a paid job and mm-hmm. you try to, trying to cut corners and not get a carne mm-hmm. and go as a tourist and not get the correct visa and you your gear gets stopped and doesn't get brought in that's your fault mm-hmm. and it's just one of the th- these things if you're doing it for a client you have to pass on these costs to them explain to them okay well we're going here and we need this and and the, it's just one of the things flying is just absolutely horrendous and you know, there's. You, I'm reading every day. You know, there's always a new story about how um, the FAA or whoever it is are going to change what we can. Check. Yeah, I know. Um, and you know, they're saying anything with any lithium-ion battery cannot be checked, uh, and then you, and then no camera can be checked, and it's kind of like no professional electronic gear can be checked. I'm like, at some point soon, if this goes down this road, I don't think we'll ever be able to fly abroad with our gear anymore. We'll just have. To, the era of the rental company is going to be there because everybody's going to have to have a major rental outlet in every single city in every single place because we can't fly with anything, which right. would be ter- terrible if that ever happens. But, um, yeah, it's oh, – I hate it. I hate it so much. I always <laughs> bring too much. Always bring too much. So make the best advice I say is just make a list beforehand right. uh, and, and just bring what you need mm-hmm. uh, Maybe, you know, a couple of backup things as much as possible. Like, a, you know, if you shoot, I always have a second camera mm-hmm. just in case. But, but kind of the obvious stuff, really. Okay. Batteries. Always bring ba- extra batteries. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> batteries, batteries, batteries. Now, um, what advice would you give a filmmaker wanting to break into the business today? Uh, I guess the first question is why do you want to? Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons, then that's great. It's not, you know, you know very well, it's not a business to get rich in. So it's a I was going to say, it's not, it's not rich and famous? That's not the reason why to get in? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Go and become a banker or something. I don't know. Right. Um, if, you want, if, you, if you just want to do something creative and, and you, because you get into it because you want to be creative. Mm-hmm. And so that's my best advice to start with. Um, and it's a tricky thing. It's, it's one of these things that, and I think this is kind of partly why it's so good to have this course that I've done with MZ is it's whilst it's not a film school replacement, it condenses all of my knowledge into this one thing. So mm-hmm. if people watch it, then they can get, uh, you're not going to become a filmmaker from watching this, but you're going to get a lot of knowledge from it and hopefully use that knowledge to find your own style and voice and know how to do things a bit better because that's what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to be patient uh, which a lot of people aren't these days. There's too much like mm-hmm. wanting stuff to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my best example of this was a guy did. So I do this. I do some um, uh, private tuition with people. I remember this guy emailed me saying he wanted to get to make a short film to 
be entered into next year's Cannes Film Festival. And he wants some training for that. I'm like, interesting. Okay. So I asked him to tell me, it's a really strange way of actually you know, wording things anyway. Yes. I want to make sure. I'm, I'm going to submit it to the Oscars. Cannes. It's I can submit it to the Oscars. Yeah, right? I'd like to win an Oscar. So I'd like to do some training with you. Like, <laughs> right. well, I have not won an Oscar, so I'm the wrong person. So don't come to me. Right. But I said to him, so what, is it, what do you want to do? So what do you want to learn from? So I, I want to get a grounding of like, you know, things which can uh, help me make, you know, be able to make this film. I was like, so what experience do you have? None. <laughs> I've never used a camera. I've never made a film. Oh God. But I've, I've seen lots of films. Ooh. So I then yeah. said to him, well, I don't know how long you're expecting training wise from me, but, um, <laughs> you got 10 years. Can I ask what sort of, how, how long do you expect? What do you want from me? Exactly. <laughs> and he said, um, maybe how much would it cost for two hours of training? <laughs> oh my God. You gotta be kidding. And me. I, I replied to him and went, you know, that's not going to be enough. And then he replied saying, well, what about four. <laughs> and that's where the conversation, I felt, it felt like a practical joke. Uh-huh. Uh, but it wasn't, it was being deadly serious. Right. And it's one of the things you've got to be so patient with and you've got to work your ass off for years. To, for years for years for years yeah absolutely for years before you you know i when i left sky i was senior cameraman and you know i, I couldn't go any further at the company without going into management and leaving the camera behind mm-hmm. and then when i left i didn't want to do news anymore mm-hmm. so i had to start completely again from the bottom and it took me four years to start getting the work that i really wanted to do even after Even being 17 years in another aspect of the business. Exactly. So it's, and, and now there's a huge amount of more competition than there was even oh. 11 years ago. Oh, God. So it's, you've got to be really patient and you've, you've got to be, obviously you've got to have talent. Um, you've got to have uh, the ability to sell yourself as well. And it's not something to be, uh, embarrassed about or talk about not talk about you know it's a business after yes. all any job any job where you are selling yourself and your mm-hmm. skills it's business and you have to be able to sell yourself i, I remember i worked with this guy who was such a talented uh, director and filmmaker but wasn't doing anywhere near the work he should be because he just was a terrible salesman mm-hmm. so you've got to have that skill as well find good people to work with try and network as much as you can with people um, I'm not sure, you know, a Facebook group is not the same as proper networking whilst it can be useful. It's just, there's so much noise on there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, everything's it's become so diluted. It's much, much, much harder to find clear voices. Yep. To listen to. Um, but at the end of the day, if you can make it in this as, as a business, then it's a career then fantastic because it is for me it's the greatest thing in the world to be able to to, to be able to do what I would do if mm. you weren't paying me and mm. and to pay me for stuff as well. That's great. But you've got to understand that most of the time that you get paid, you won't like what you're doing. You won't <laughs> like the work that you're producing. Yes. And amen. Amen. Accept that and let it go. And then do stuff for yourself to have that creative fulfillment because when you're doing a corporate for some guy you're gonna you know you're gonna look at it and go oh god 
and they're going to tell you know, you're working for them you're not you're not make they're not hiring you to make a philip bloom film they're hiring you to right. make a film uh they're they're the client you make it for them right. and yeah you've got to make it as good as you possibly can they probably come to you because they've seen something that you've done right but at the end of the day you are going to find that you are not going to love what's been done with your what you've made necessarily or what's been done with your work at the end and you just have to accept that and move on now what and, is and you always still give everything to it just because it is not yes. it's a crappy thing still give everything to it because you can you still be know. you can still be creative you can still get so much out of it yourself and when you get home you don't feel like oh my god what a terrible day i had to, had to film this worst call center ever it was awful lighting and blah 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 that's fine, but if you made an effort and made it look good, then you can come home and go and you pour yourself you know, a drink and go, I deserve this because I, I, I made that look good and you're happy. You don't want to come home and feel bitter ever. Oh, God, yes. And there are a lot of bitter filmmakers out there without question because they fall into that trap. And uh, when, I, when I spoke to uh, – I worked with Robert Forrester and he gave a great piece of advice, which is like no matter how small the job, give, yourself, give it 110% because you never – know who's watching you never know yeah. who's on set or who will see that work and maybe hire you for another job somewhere else even them even that client they may give you this really terrible job yep and then they see oh my god this was really bad and i can't believe how good you made this <laughs> you're perfect for this uh this job that we have for six months in the seychelles right I'm like oh Oh, right, great. And now you, you never know. You never know. Yeah, now, you never know what you're going to get. Now, what's the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Um, oh, um, don't kill yourself with work. Uh, take, <laughs> set yourself um, time where you stop. Now, my edit suite is, I have a home edit suite, mm -hmm. which is financially convenient and mm -hmm. obviously nice and handy there's no commute for me when i'm editing mm -hmm. but that divide between work and life is really difficult and so uh when i am editing apart from i mean when i was cutting the mz series mind you i had to break this most times because i was working stupid long hours editing mm -hmm. but for most jobs i kind of set myself um I, you know if it's no, but with 6 to 7 p.m., I'm like, okay, no more work after 7. Mm -hmm. And be disciplined about it. Disciplined at your start time, disciplined about your finish time. Mm -hmm. And make sure you give yourself time to see your, your girlfriend, mm -hmm. your wife, <laughs> boyfriend, your husband, your friends, your right. children. Sure. Make sure you have a life. Uh, I very rarely work weekends now um, mm -hmm. unless the shoot demands it or, you know, I have to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I will down tools at weekends. Yeah, you'll still find me with a camera. You'll still find me flying a drone or taking photos somewhere. But that's me. That's my own time. Um, and, and if you can, find yourself um, a girlfriend who, who likes doing it with you. <laughs> it's always good. So, that's I mean, always my girlfriend helpful. Sarah loves, loves shooting and uh, she loves all that stuff as well. So that really does help. But I think it's really important to um, get – the work-life balance right and it, it took me probably about 20 years or so to start realizing <laughs> how off it was yes and now i work um way less than i used to right i probably work i probably work half as much as i used to two years ago um 
So yeah, I earn a lot less, but I'm a lot happier. And that's really and priceless. <laughs> it is priceless. It also makes my work better because yes. I'm happier. Yes. Very so good all, lesson. It, yeah, I think that's probably the best thing I've learned. It took me a long time to learn it. I'm very stubborn, um, but I eventually figured it out. I, I feel you 100%. I, I try to, I do exactly all those things. I don't work weekends and I have a specific time I come in and a specific time I come out every day. And because everyone always asks, how do you create so much content? How do you, you know, run this, this, you know, this big blog and, and do all the stuff you do and have twins and have a family and all this? Like, you gotta, you gotta do exactly what you said. Gotta be very strict with yourself. And uh, I'm impressed. I mean, you got kids. I mean, I haven't even got kids yet. And um, I don't even know uh, how I'll cope with having kids as well. Apart from I'll probably just film them a lot. <laughs> yes, they would probably be the most documented children in history without question. I think they probably will, yeah. <laughs> and uh, last question, what are three of your favorite films of all time? Oh, you know, that's an impossible question to answer, I know, it's just, just today, today. What do you feel like today? Oh, um, I, I still want to go with uh, Empire Strikes Back is, in, is in, always in my top three. Absolutely. It was... It was that was one of the first films I ever saw as a kid where I still remember the emotional reaction I had mm -hmm. coming out of that. Mm -hmm. And it's still watch it today. And I still feel, wow, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm also a huge uh, Alfred Hitchcock fan yes, and find it difficult to pick a favorite. But again, I think for the emotional impact and maybe I'm a, it's another film with a downer ending. Mm -hmm. That's Vertigo. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. But it's just such an incredible film in every way. God, I think I'm just thinking of all my favorites, all have such downer endings. I don't know why. I, I actually like happy endings of films. <laughs> I like things to. to I want. To, I don't want to feel like like I felt at the end of Seven every time I see a film. <laughs> wow, I know, right? Just like or you know, Fight Club, or that, I mean, that's Fincher for you. That's any Fincher movie. Yeah. Gone Girl. I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> You know, the worst date film of all time. Yes, they um, are. <laughs> it is actually the worst date film of all time. It really is. That, or Fatal Attraction. Got, and Fatal you'll, you'll break up. Fatal Attraction. Break up now. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's not a good one as well. <laughs> and I guess, oh, I don't know. I think maybe something more recent. Um, um, I don't know. But of the films I've seen recently, what, another one that had a really good emotional impact on me was... Um, Denny Villeneuve's Arrival last year. Yeah, that was actually um, really interesting. That's such an interesting was, film to yeah. watch. It's not my favorite film, yeah. uh, but it was my favorite film of the year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw Blade Runner 2049 last Just, week, and that was, again, incredible. Oh, yeah, and I this, saw that too. And he's, an, he's an amazing filmmaker. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I always tend to go back to the same films I end up watching again and again and again, whether it's the original Planet of the Apes Sure. Uh, I love I love my sci-fi very much. <laughs> and then Raiders. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Of course. You can't get a more perfect film than Raiders. Raiders is, is, per is perfect. It is a perfect film. And since you're a Hitchcock fan, have you seen the new documentary 7852? No, I have not. Have you heard of it? No, I have not. I have just not found out it? I just found out about it the other day. I, well, it's on iTunes. I watched it yesterday. And it is yeah an entire documentary about the shower scene in Psycho. Wow. And they go through every shot and they talk to everything and the impact of Psycho, but they literally break down everything about that shower scene, which is arguably 
the you know yeah. 90 seconds the most ni- important 90 seconds in film history honestly some of the yeah. i mean what he was able to do in that shower sequence but someone put together arguably a really good documentary shot in black and white by the way uh yeah. it was gorgeous it's on itunes you definitely should watch it if any film geek and definitely hitchcock fan will love it yeah uh, anybody who has not seen psycho what the hell are you doing <laughs> why are you listening to us go watch psycho you, really, right you have to watch this film that is um if you if you take the sections which obviously date the film, which is the beginning sure. and the anything that anything outside of just at the motel, mm-hmm. uh, it is it stands up completely today. It, it does. Could, be, could have been made. It's just so incredible, and I just it, some of the it's the most innovative filmmaking you'll ever see. And and you know we're talking was it nineteen sixty nineteen sixty. It's See, we could we could do a whole episode just on Psycho without question. Yeah. Um, oh God, yeah. I, mean, I think I might watch it tonight. Actually, <laughs> now where can uh, where can people find uh, you and your work? So um, my website is uh, philipbloom.net. So it's p h i l i p b l o o m, and my my blog is there, and that is the same. Philip Bloom is what I have for all of my social media, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, mm-hmm. um, Twitter. Uh, it's just MySpace, MySpace, GeoCities. No, sorry. You know, it probably is still there. <laughs> yeah, mine's is too. Probably I haven't checked. I ever it used, I didn't think I ever really used it as such. Right. Um, it's one of the things I do have, but yeah. So it's it's pretty simple to find me, and I'm quite active. I'm pretty active on them and it is a real mixture of photography, filmmaking uh, and personal stuff. Um, I put some, I do put personal stuff on social media and that's kind of, you know, another, it's a whole podcast is about, you know, yes. your whole dividing line between yes. this sort of thing. And I think it's important to, to be, to be, uh, to be you on social media. And that's why I always say in my bio, silly, grumpy. So depending on how I'm feeling, I will be like that. And I put some personal stuff up there and I put some, um, you know, everything I try to make as nice as possible. Mm-hmm. I have a nice mix and I just try and make it feel as, uh, as, as me as it is, you know, like the MZ course, it's mm-hmm. me. What you see is a very, un, uh, very different to anything else you'll ever see training wise. Cause it's, it's very personal. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I kind of think that's, this just kind of sums me up really and how I like to share things. Philip, man, thank you so much for taking the time out. It's been an absolute joy speaking to you, man. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. I can't tell you what an absolute thrill and pleasure it was to talk to Philip. Uh, And, you know, after reading his blog for so long and, uh, and listening to him on YouTube. And I mean, if you need to know about camera gear uh, and, and reviews about camera gear and things like that, Man, I definitely check his his website out. I'm gonna leave all his links in the show notes at indiefilmhustle.com forward slash two oh eight. And as promised, link to his amazing online course. Just go to indiefilmhustle.com forward slash bloom. That's B-L-O-O-M. Indiefilmhustle.com forward slash bloom. Like I said, it's almost 10 hours. And as a special gift to the tribe, you get to watch the first lesson for free. And he goes over so many things in this course, things I wish I would have learned or would have known about when I first started out in the business. And you don't even have to buy the entire course if you just want to buy modules of the course like visual storytelling, how to do interviews, slow motion, time lapse, aerial cinematography with drones, how to really work with story, post-production, or just the basics 
uh, lens whacking, things like that. You can buy them per module or you could buy the entire course. I say get the entire course. It's definitely well worth it, guys. And I wanted to take a quick second before we go to thank you all for emailing me and uh, and giving me all these amazing emails and letters about how uh, the podcast and the work that I'm doing with Indie Film Hustle has affected your lives. It really means a lot to me. I'm really, really grateful and humbled every time I get an email. I try to email everybody back. I try to re return everybody's letter in one way, shape, or form. I'm only one guy, so I do the best I can. But I want to just publicly say thank you again so much, and I will keep doing this as long as I can because I know how much it really uh, helps you guys out there. And please spread the word about the podcast about the blog, about the YouTube channel, about everything we do at Indie Film Hustle uh, so we can help as many filmmakers, as many screenwriters, as many artists as we can with uh, the knowledge that I'm trying to put out into the world and the good, positive energy that I'm trying to put out into the world and helping you guys all out. So again, thank you very much. I truly, truly appreciate it. And as always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 